So as we get started, I just uh, want to take a, a minute or two, and um, we don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about uh, General Assembly and those sorts of things, but um, that's where uh, that's where myself and uh, Jim um, Hildebrand and George Roundtree, we were all at our General Assembly this past week, and um, and I would just tell you, you know, kind of from my general perspective on things, that uh, the denomination is healthy and in good shape. And um, there don't seem to be any uh, really large nor looming issues for us at present. And so that's a good thing. Um, there was lots of good debate, and, um, and it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a healthy time, and it was, it was good. And I think uh, we'll probably give a more detailed update on that um, at some point here in the near future. And I'll let Jim and George give their perspective. Sometimes coming from the ruling elder, it's a little bit different. Um, but uh, And then I just want to tell you thank you. Thanks for your prayers for me. Um, while I was the, previously, that uh, the weekend prior was my inspection uh, at the National Guard base down in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, I'm happy to report that our wing overall received an effective. And um, these days they do highly effective, which is a really teeny tiny slice of the pie at this end. And then effective is a big chunk in the middle, and then not effective is down at the other end. And our wing overall has an effective rating, and uh, the chaplain's office has an effective rating, and we had no issues with, uh, with my stuff. So I'm relieved and excited, and maybe I won't have to do it again uh, in five years. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I do appreciate your prayers. So we're looking at a passage that is, okay, it's one of those passages where you read it, you're thinking to yourself, what in the world am I going to pull out of this thing, right? And you're reading it, and you're probably wondering, what in the world is he going to pull out of this thing? Um, and I titled it, as, as I'm looking at it, um, uh, the, the Cost of Peacemaking. Because as I read the passage, that, that to me is the central idea that jumps out, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, If you haven't had it happen in your life, you, you're, you will, and that is there is often a need to be a peacemaker. In fact, I dare say if you looked around in any relationship right now you have, you could probably find a part of a relationship that needs mending. Relationships are always in flux. There are always issues. There are always things happening in them. There are hurt feelings and there, there are problems. And I'll just give you a for instance. So, and, and this is fresh, okay? And, and I don't think these guys would mind. Um, I'm not going to share their names, but by the power of deduction, you could get there pretty easily. Um, but I go to my drill this past weekend, right? And, um, and I show up, and I've known for, for several months that I have an issue between two of my chaplains. One of them just happens to be my former boss, who is was the was the wing chaplain, the position that I now hold, and he has an issue and has had an issue with one of our other chaplains, who's a, a younger chaplain than him, and um, and I've known this for roughly a year and a half, um, and I've, I've talked with both of them. I've encouraged both of them to talk with each other. They're godly men. They both love the Lord. They, they, they're both great chaplains. And so I show up this drill period and I know what's looming. And what's looming is 
I have asked all of our chaplains and chaplain assistants to go on our annual training, which uh, begins next week. Um, It's the first time the chaplains have ever done their own little portion of training together. It's the first time we've ever gone somewhere and done our thing together because usually we're caring for our units. And so it's an opportunity for us to be together and build our team together and, and, and work on our readiness together and that sort of thing. And so I'm thinking to myself, I can't have these two guys in the same room because they won't talk to each other. And so I have to sit down with them on this drill period in a room which I could reach out and touch both of their shoulders, right? So the hot air, their breathing is on me and them. It's close quarters. And I have to bring these two guys to a place where they can begin to talk about this relationship. And... um, and in God's providence, and, 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 and I'm thankful, he was gracious. And those two guys, two grown men, sat there in the room, a, a lieutenant colonel and a major, um, one guy with 23 years, the other guy with 10 years, and they walked through their issues together. And they got up and they hugged and they said they loved each other and, um, and that they were both good with where they were at and they buried their issues. Have you ever had to do that? You ever had to do that personally in your life? There's a cost. As I listened to those two men, I knew we were not going to walk out of that room unless somebody, unless one of them decided that they were going to lay down their needs, their wants, their hurts, their pains, and say, enough is enough. I'll just eat it. Because somebody has to. Somebody has to somebody has to finally say, I'll eat the pain, I'll take the sorrow, I'll take it in order for it to be good. Because in relationships, that's just what you have to do. Because sometimes the person won't say they're sorry. Sometimes the person won't go to where you need them to go. And if they don't go there and you want there to be peace, You have to eat the pain and the sorrow and the hurt. I think that's why Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, go to him. You see what he does when he does that? Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us, if your brother has something against you, go to him. Leave your gift at the altar and go to him and be reconciled to him. So in your relationships... When, when that evil, dastardly person has done something to you, Jesus puts the onus on you to go to him or her to make peace. Why? Why does it become your responsibility and your job to go make peace with the person who's wronged you? Let's look at our passage, and I think we're going to see in it an answer to that question. The pa- and here's how we're going to do it. We're just going to kind of walk through the story, okay? And I'm going to try to give you the best take on what's happening in the story, and then we're going to hit the two main points that I think are here in the passage. And one of them has to do with the providence of God, the restraining providence of God in David's life, and the other one has to do with Uh, Abigail's peacemaking efforts. But let's just kind of set the stage. 
And, and right out of the gate, verse 1 is an important lesson. Somebody quotes a, a, a Count Zinzendorf here who says um, that, that um, a preacher's lot in life is to preach Christ, die, and be buried. That's it. To preach Christ, to die, and to be buried and forgotten. Samuel died. All Israel assembled and mourned for him. They buried him at his home in Ramah, and David moved on. That's all Samuel gets. If you read the story, he's a significant figure, and that's all he gets. So here's what happens. We get introduced to this man named, oh, hold on a second. We don't get introduced to him right out of the gate. What do we find out? We find out that there is a man, right? Verse 2, there's a man in Mayon. He owned lots of property, and he's extremely wealthy, very wealthy. He has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was in the period of shearing at Carmel. His name, finally, is Nabal, and his wife's name is Abigail. Um, Men, this could probably be said for most of us, right? She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was adult. Um, He was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Um, There's probably a lot of us that could be described that way. so that's the introduction, and the introduction it actually says something. The fact that the writer doesn't say, Nabal lived in Carmel, and he was a very wealthy man. He's introduced to us as a very wealthy man who has a lot of stuff. Okay, When someone introduces you, and they describe you that way, what they're saying is, what's really important to this person is that. Okay? And that was what was important to Nabal. Nabal had a lot of stuff. He was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. And, um, and he had tons of property. And he was a jerk. Let's just put it out there. He was a fool, the passage says. But he had an amazing wife. Um, and so the, the, the text tells us that David was out in the wilderness and he heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So this is kind of a celebratory period. Um, a, a festival of sorts. And so the festival is going on, and David sends ten of his men, and he says, go up there, greet Nabal, and tell him, hey, good health to you, long life to you, to you and your household. We need some provisions. Can you help us out? And oh, by the way, we've been taking good care of your fellows. Um, now, so here's how this typically would work out, okay? There were there would be bands of roving individuals, roving people that would be out in the desert camping from place to place, and um, and then there would be sheep herders like Nabal. Okay, so Nabal would have he had lots of sheep, three thousand sheep. That's that's a lot, and they would have been out grazing here and there and uh, you know hither and yon, and and while all of that is happening, David's men just kind of kept an eye on things. Okay. Um, if you've ever lived in a small community, you kind of know how this is. You're driving down the road, and you see a cow that's on the side of the road, outside of the fence. Well, what do you do? Well, you go home, and you call Billy, and you say, Hey, Billy, saw one of your cows down there on the side of the road. Okay? And then Billy gets in his truck, and he drives over there and puts the cow back in the pasture. That's kind of how it happens. And, and 
and, and that's kind of what was going on here. David was living out in the wilderness, and his guys kind of kept an eye on Nabal's sheep and his herdsmen and made sure that nothing happened to them. And so essentially what David is doing now is he's calling in a favor. And so he sends his guys in to talk to Nabal, and he's, they're going to say to Nabal, hey, look, long life to you, happy greetings to you. Oh, by the way, we've been watching over your flocks and your people, and nothing's happened to them, and everything's gone well for them. Um, see, verse 7, it's, I, now I hear it's sheep shearing time. Uh, when your shepherds were here with us, we did not mistreat them the whole time they were in Carmel, Nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you they'll be favorable toward my, uh, therefore be favorable towards my men since we come at a festive time and give us some of your stuff. Okay? And so what David was saying is, look, we helped you. Now how about you help us? Okay? Here's kind of another situation. Have you ever driven up like you're in a big city and, um, like, I don't know, Augusta, okay? Is that a big city? You pull up to a light, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a guy runs out with a bucket, and he washes your windshield, and you're like, no, no, you know? And before you know it, he's done, and he's standing at the window with his hand out, and you're like, okay, all right? And you give him some money. That's kind of the scenario, okay? The scenario is, Nabal had all of his stuff out there. Dave and his guys kind of kept an eye on things. And now they're coming around and saying, hey, how about you give us a little bit? And Nabal is a jerk. There's just no other way to put it. He answers David's servants. He says, who is this David? He knew who David was. Who is this David, this son of Jesse? Many servants. Now, you'll start to get it, right? Look, there are all kinds of people out there that are wandering around in the wilderness, breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my stuff and my water and the meat that I've slaughtered and give it to men from who knows where? He's just being snotty. He's just, he's being mean. He, he, he is, he, yeah. I mean, when his wife is described as a beautiful woman and he's surly and mean in his dealings, that's exactly what you get. And so the word comes back. That's the word that comes back to David. And David blows his stack. And he says, strap on your swords. Sword is mentioned four times right here. Boom, boom, boom. Strap on your swords. They strapped on their swords. David strapped on his swords. They strapped on their swords. They went down with a promise. Let's just pause right there. Nabal is a jerk. And David, at this point, is an idiot. He is a fool's fool. Because he has let this guy ramp him up. And, and into the stratosphere. And what's striking is that David has come out of, if you take chapter 25 and you put it next to tw- chapter 24, and you go, is this the same David? Because in chapter 24, remember, there's an incident 
where David and his men are hiding in a cave. These caves, were they're known, they're very large. He's hiding in the cave. Okay, This is kind of their sanctuary. And, oh yeah, that guy who's hunting him, King Saul, decides he, he wants to use David's facilities to relieve himself. And so he comes into David's cave to go to the bathroom, and he's there. David has the opportunity to kill him, to take out his mortal enemy at this point, the man who wants nothing more than to take David's head off. And, and David's men are just chomping at the bit, and David says, no. No, no, no. We do not kill the Lord's anointed. We're not just going to shed blood like that. And so he clips off a little portion of Saul's robe. And and this man is acting very methodical. And in the very next chapter, he is a loose cannon. And and this is one of those places where, right, in in biblical characters and biblical figures, and as you and I read through this, there's a little something... I think here for us, right? David, King David, a man after God's own heart, wasn't consistent in the way he lived. He wasn't consistent in the way he acted and the things that he did. Sometimes that's comforting. He has the same need that you and I have. David needed a Savior because David wasn't consistent. David wasn't perfect. David wasn't righteous. He needed the righteousness of another, and you and I do too. Move forward. Verse 14, how many of you all like to be people that operate behind the scenes? Let's see your hand. Are you a behind-the-scenes kind of a person? Yeah? A few of you? Verse 14, behind the scenes. We have no name. We don't know whose person is, but a servant, a wise servant, a smart servant, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, things are about to get serious. Nabal was an idiot, and he turned David's messengers away. If I were you, I would go fix it. And Abigail, verse 18, acts quickly. She loads up. Here's my my summary of what I think happens here. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, yum, and loaded them on donkeys. And then she told her servants, go ahead, I'll follow you. And then what? But she did not tell Nabal. Why? You know why? Because Nabal was having a party. Where do you think she got all of that food? This, the text doesn't say it. This is just me reading into it. What a smart woman, right? She took some of the party fixings that Nabal had And she gave them to David. What did David want? It makes sense in the story. It's a festive time. Nabal's having a party. How do you get 200 fig cakes? Okay? You get them because they already had them. 
She takes all of these fixings and she goes out. She rushes out to David. She loads up her donkeys. She rushes out to David and she finds him. Interestingly enough, she knows who he is. Nabal acted as if he didn't. She knows who, she, who he is. When she finds him, she bows down. She jumps off her donkey. She bows down before David, her face to the ground, and she says a bunch of stuff. But essentially, essentially, here is what I want you to see. <clears throat> One of the things that comes out in the text is that David hears and understands, okay? He, he receives this, um, it, it's, a, it's a soft rebuke, really, from Abigail. It, she's pleading with him, don't do this. And, and the Lord is, and, and here's how she does it. The Lord has sent me to you to challenge you, to tell you, okay? And, um, and, and I'm going to get to how she does it, but David understands it. In verse 32, David says to, to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you this day. Has that ever happened to you? Where somebody comes or somebody challenges you? How do you perceive that? How do you see that? Do, if someone comes to you and says, you know, this hurt me or that hurt me or I think, you know, this is... That, those are hard to receive. This is challenging This would have been really challenging for David. But what does David say? David says, praise be to God that he sent you to me to keep me from really screwing up. That is the preventative providence of God. That he was at work behind the scenes utilizing a woman in that day and age. We're talking 1020 B.C., okay? Abigail didn't have a high standing in society. And here she is going and taking this message to David. And basically what she's saying to him is, my husband is an idiot. Please, please don't go and take it out on him and all those men. Instead, are you ready for this? What does she say? Verse 24. I think this is the crux of the text. She fell at his feet and she said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Here's what Abigail does. Abigail does what Jesus does for you and me. Abigail, first, she provides an offering, right? She goes and she takes all of this food, verse 18, and she gives it to David. She offers it to David. But here's the thing. In verse 24, Abigail offers to bear Nabal's sin. That's what she says. Here's what she's saying. She's looking, she's going to David who is coming in vengeance, right? So think in the story. Let's just put the characters in perspective. In the story, David is doing the Lord's work. The justice, the holiness, the wrath of God is in David's department. He's not exercising it in the right way, but that's where it lies. And so he's coming, okay, to pour out that wrath and judgment on Nabal. In your story and in my story, 
we're Nabal. Okay? You and I are all Nabals. We're the idiots. We're the fools. We're the sinners. We're the jerks. We're the ones separated by God because of our sin. Right? We're the sinner in the story. Abigail rides into the middle of the story and she looks at David who's going to pour his wrath out on Nabal and she says, I'll take the punishment for my husband. Wow. Do you know what she's saying? She is saying, right, the blame... Here's what, here's what she's saying. She gets off her donkey. She falls on her feet, uh, on her face before David's feet. She puts her face in the dirt and she says, do to me what you're headed to do to Nabal. Because he's an idiot. And I'll take it for him today. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet Nabals, Jesus on the cross said, I'll take their penalty. Pour your wrath out on me. You get that? It's a big doctrine that we talk about called substitutionary atonement. And what that means is, Jesus substituted in our place and took the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself. And Abigail rides into the middle of the storm and says, give it to me. I'll take it for that lousy man back there. Y'all, that's love. That's the love that Christ shows us, only He does it perfectly and He takes upon Himself the sin of everyone who would ever put their faith in Him. Because He can. Abigail could only take it for a lousy husband. Jesus can take it for all of us. And He did. And in the story, David doesn't do that. It's enough, right? He gets the picture. He understands and and no doubt, right? Think about it. No doubt when Nabal gets the story. So <laughs> let's finish the story. The story finishes. Nabal or uh, Abigail and David have some back and forth speeches in which David says, "You're right. I was wrong." And thank you. That's essentially what he says. He says, "Thank you to God. Thank you to Abigail." And uh, and then Abigail rides back. And when she gets back, the party's in full swing. Nabal is drunk. And she says, I'll just wait till tomorrow morning to talk to I mean, does this sound at all familiar to any of you? Right? What a wise woman. And she says, you know, I'm not going to say anything to him tonight because it will just really make him mad. I'll tell him tomorrow. And so she tells him in the morning. And he has a stroke or a heart attack. It says he was as if he was like a rock. Something bad happens, and ten days later he dies The Lord takes him. And then what does David do? David says, you know, that gal Abigail is something else. (laughs) 
beautiful, smart. She listened to the Lord, and she was willing to sacrifice herself in love for a jerk of a husband. I think I'll ask her to be my wife. I just so happens to ask other women to be his wife too. But we're not going to go there just yet. But if you'll notice, the writer sets the stage, right? Look at verse 44. David had also married Ahihom of Jezreel, and they both were his wives, verse 44. But Saul had given his daughter Michal. Right? There's something there, and we're, we'll find that something there down the road. Um, there's always a but when men have more than one wife. All right, we'll just leave it right there. That's the story. And I hope as you hear it, I hope as you see it, I hope you know this. The high, there is a high cost involved in peacemaking. It began with Jesus. When he made peace between the Father and you, he offered himself. And I hope that you hear that message. Because that's the message of the text, is that Abigail offered herself as a sacrifice for her husband. She's a picture of Christ for us, a type of Christ, if you will, showing us how our Savior offered himself to make us right with God. That's the first. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. Jesus loves you. He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement to make you right with God. But the secondary part of that story is this. In your life, there is a high cost of peacemaking as well. Don't be afraid to own it. Don't be afraid to eat it. Don't listen. I was terrified. It's why I, it's why I went three months or longer before I brought those two chaplains together. Because even putting myself in the same room with those two guys, trying to get them to make up, was costly in my life. I lost sleep over it. Okay? But don't be afraid to be a peacemaker. Don't be afraid to lay aside some of your wants and needs and desires in order to make peace. It's costly. But the Bible tells us it's worth it. Paul says that you and I are ministers of reconciliation. Because of the reconciliation God has given to us in Christ Jesus. I hope you'll hear that message. Listen, if you're ever in a situation, and, and as I look out, I know they're here. I, I know you have them in which you, you want to go, you need to go, you, you're struggling with that. Please come see me or Marion. We're in the business of helping reconcile and helping others make peace, okay? So come, talk to us. Let us, let us engage in that process with you and to walk with you in, in prayer. And to, if need be, go with you. We're willing to do all of that in order for there to be peace, not only in our body, but in your life. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good to us. Thanks for your love. Thank you for the story of Abigail and Nabal, hard as it is to hear. Father, we know that you were at work then as you are now.